A reading from the prophet Isaiah. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his, around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall sh lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hold, a hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered, sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now... Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for who, her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, light of the world, would you dawn in our midst this morning that we may behold your glory and be changed, that we may be renewed and strengthened in our faith. Be with us and bless us now as we sit with your scriptures, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, friends, the holiday season is officially upon us. December is here, uh, and we now sit in the eye of that storm between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and we know what's coming, don't we? It's what the radio calls the most wonderful time of the year. And some of us undoubtedly love this time of year, this holiday season. If you're like me, your brain is filled with neural pathways that were forged in childhood as you drooled over glossy photos in the Sears catalog of shiny new toys while Bing Crosby crooned in the background and there were sparkly lights and the Christmas tree smell filled the room. And so every year around this time, when you hear sleigh bells, there's like this Pavlovian response, right? Uh, and it's this visceral urge to, to spend too much money on shiny things that no one needs, and the nostalgia just floods. For others among us, undoubtedly as well, the holiday season prompts a whole other range of emotions, and it's actually the most difficult time of the year. It's a season when anxiety and depression runs high, Year-end deadlines loom. Family tensions escalate as we spend more time than usual around uh, people that we don't see as much anymore. And we feel often more acutely the losses and the sorrows that have marked our lives. And so relationally, emotionally, personally, spiritually, the holidays can be hard. And the holiday rituals, the music, the traditions, the advertisements they are powerful. They shape us, they form our desires and our imaginations, and that's why the Advent season is so important. Because preparing for Christmas or getting into the holiday spirit, as they say, can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And what we do during this season each year, it will shape us in one way or another. Whether you're someone who tends to escape into the sentimentalism and commercialism of the holiday season, or you're someone who would prefer to escape from the whole thing altogether, Advent presents you with an invitation not to escape, but to engage. To take up practices that shape you not in the direction of superficial sentimentalism or consumerism or despair, but in the direction of becoming a person of real, robust hope. During Advent, we take up practices of engaging God himself and of rehearsing the story of his faithfulness as we watch and wait for Christ, who came once upon a time at Christmas and who will come again to judge the living and the dead, as we say, when he comes to set all things right. So Advent is not just about getting ready for Christmas. It's about getting ready for Christ for Christ himself and for the kingdom that he's, that he's promised to establish when he returns. It's about preparing him room in our hearts, preparing for the future he will come to bring. And so to do that, to help us do that this Advent, we're doing this little sermon series on hope, love, peace, and joy. These, these are words that, uh, and concepts that are rich with meaning 
in the scriptures, and they're loaded with significance for us in the way that we actually live our real lives. But they're also these words that often show up all over the place, especially this time of year, in sort of cheap, kitschy, superficial kinds of ways, right? More empty ways. And they get pressed into the service of the sentimentalism, of the commercialism, of the holiday season. And the problem with the cheap versions, I think, is twofold. It's not just that they lack the substance that we crave, the substance that we need, but it's also that when the superficial, kitschy versions of these words, hope, love, peace, joy, when the cheap versions of those things are all that we know of those things, it's hard not to become cynical. It's hard not to conclude that these are just naive ideals that don't really fit reality. Earlier this year, Roxane Gay published an op-ed in the New York Times called The Case Against Hope, in which she discusses why hope isn't a good idea because it leads to inactions. And she writes this, I don't traffic in hope. Realism is more my ministry than is unbridled optimism. Hope is too ineffable and far too elusive. Hope allows us to leave what is possible in the hands of others. No matter who we are, where we come from, what we believe, who we vote for, how we worship, we live in this world together. And so maybe we should do everything in our power to make sure things don't get worse. The case against hope. And obviously her point stands to reason, right? Any sort of hope that would lead to inaction or passivity is probably not a helpful sort of hope. But is that all hope is? Or is there a better version than this kind of cheap sort of hope that she is, I think, rightly rejecting? Another less than satisfying version of hope that I encountered this week was uh, I was down at the Thanksgiving Day Parade and went to the um, a little at the Eakins Oval, the Dunkin' Donuts uh, extravaganza or whatever, where they have these, you know, these booths and stuff. And there was one where um, the audience of one crew, you know, that's uh, the Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Carson Wentz. That's his nonprofit, uh, and they do a lot of great things. They do a lot of good work. They have the Thy Kingdom Crumb food truck that was there giving pumpkin pie to everybody, and they also gave out these little goodie bags that had like a cup and a bracelet, but it also had this book. And the book was called The Surprise of Your Life with a foreword by Carson Wentz. And, uh, and on the back, it basically just says, heaven is real. Forget everything you ever thought you knew about how to get there. And the trash cans were just like overflowing with these books at the end of the event, right? Um, and I actually skimmed through the book. I took it home and read it. My daughter is thrilled with hers. She's written her name all over it and stuff. And there's a lot of good stuff in it, actually. It's a, it's, it is a fairly nuanced and decent book. I, I read it, and I was like, oh, there's some good stuff here. But what it's marketed as, the cover that no one reads beyond, is simply this otherworldly sort of hope that I, I, think, I think the trash cans overflowing with this book say... Is it a hope like that that doesn't touch down in the real earth? Isn't a hope that really is very interesting or plausible to me? According to most passersby, most recipients of that book, they just don't see how a hope like that, a hope of some heaven somewhere, could be real or could matter much. But here's the thing. The hope that we find in the scriptures is not an otherworldly hope, is very much a this-worldly hope. 
It's a hope that touches down in the real stuff of the real lives in the real world where we actually live. It's not simply some optimistic version of hope that's capable of seeing how things might still work out for the best, but it's a hope that actually takes very seriously our experiences of suffering in a broken world. It's a hope that accompanies our realistic acceptance that things are not as they should be. And we may not see that change anytime soon. There's an author, J.C. Beaker, who wrote a book, Suffering and Hope, uh, who talks about two traditional notions of hope that, that are inadequate or when occasionally used in the wrong way can be even cruel. And he says one is the idea that suffering is intended to make us stronger and help us grow. And the other is the idea that God teaches us endurance through pain and suffering. And now those are true things that do happen, right? And people who live with a mature faith often can can experience their own suffering and, and discover these kinds of things in any particular situation. But however true these things may be for any particular situation, they just don't work as blanket statements for making sense of how the hope that God actually offers touches down on our real experiences of suffering. It doesn't work for a theory of suffering in general because they're too mechanical and they're too didactic to reckon with the reality of a God who comes to suffer with us in Jesus. And as we wait in Advent, what we're watching and waiting for is the coming of the Lord who comes to engage us in solidarity with us in our suffering, to give us hope and to be our hope. God with us, Emmanuel. God with us in our suffering. God with us in our hoping. Suffering isn't something that God does to us to teach us. Suffering is something God does with us to lead us through it and beyond it into a world that he's making where suffering will be no more. Fleming Rutledge says that the great theme of Advent is hope. But it's not tolerable to speak of hope unless we're willing to look squarely at the overwhelming presence of evil in our world. Advent, Rutledge says, begins in the dark, in our human solidarity with one another, in our suffering, which is where the dawn of hope happens. And that's the context of this prophecy from Isaiah 11 that we just read. This shoot that shall come out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. It's this prophetic image of judgment and hope for Israel, who at the time that this is given, their kings had made a mess of things by their selfishness and their pride and their fear and their greed. And what would happen, what the, the future that is coming upon them is that Israel would be cut down to a stump. Exile, captivity, these are the things that are coming for a people whose kings had gone in a wayward direction. And this picture of the stump is a picture of things that are as they ought not to be. But from that stump would come a shoot, a new branch, a new king in the line of David, Jesse's son, who wouldn't be like the other kings, this king wouldn't make a mess of a good thing. He would inherit a mess and restore it to goodness and peace. 
And that is the grounds of the hope that began to emerge in this passage. And verses 6 through 9 then depict this picture, this idyllic picture of a restored world that God will bring through this king. It's kind of an impossibly idyllic picture, isn't it? It's like a fairy tale sort of picture of these transformed interpersonal and even intercreature type relationships. Not only do the people get along, not only do we see justice among humans, but even the animals are getting along, even the savagely unjust world of the animals. Where they were once relating to one another as food, they are now relating to one another as friends. It's meant to be an over-the-top picture. It's meant to be striking. It's meant to be even a little bit ridiculous. And that's actually important for teaching us what it means to be a people of real hope. Because what it looks like to take up hope as we live in a, in a stump-ish world is to consent to the ridiculous-seeming reality that the future that God promises is just as real, even more so, than the brokenness that we experience in the here and now. The shoot is as real as the stump. And taking up a life of hope is to live in the here and now, to act in the here and now, in light of the reality that the shoot is as real as the stump. And in verse 10, we see that when that day comes, when that root of Jesse shall grow and flourish, it'll stand as a signal to all of the peoples, all the nations of the earth shall inquire of him, of this king. It's when the embodiment of God's desire, justice, and peace is made visible, when it will bear witness to the whole watching world the world will know the goodness of the Lord. And this image of the stump and the shoot, this stands for us, and stand, just as it stood for the people of Israel back then, it stands for us of what it looks like right now to inhabit this story of God's enduring faithfulness, even as we also inhabit a story of real suffering, of real loss, of real injustice, of real pain, of real sickness, real death. God's faithfulness persists. And the circumstances that we live with, the brokenness that we experience, those things don't undo the reality that God continues to move the story forward and he's included you in it. Just because the stump is real, doesn't mean that the shoot doesn't win in the end. The stump, this image of what ought not to be, the shoot, the roots, these images, that the brokenness is not an end, the end of the story, and taking up hope is this life of trusting God and living inside of the story that the shoot will actually bloom. In Advent, we specifically read this prophecy toward Jesus, where we see him as the one who ultimately is the one in whom this prophecy makes the most sense and comes into clearest focus and is ultimately fulfilled. Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. He is the one who grew out of the line of David that God sent to be the one to fulfill the promise and ultimately to come again to restore this world that we live in and us 
to the kind of life for which God made us in the first place, a life where we relate to God and one another well, not opportunistically, not selfishly, not competitively, but in love, a truly reconciled and a truly restored way of life. And this is our Advent hope that the world that we live in and the lives that we lead are actually attached to that future and that Christ who came and who will come again. That this Jesus is coming to make all things new, that he is the shoot and the sprout, and he's just as real as all of the broken things in our world. God has not forgotten his promise, and God has not forgotten you. The Christ who came at Christmas will come again, and when he comes, he will finish the work that he has begun, he will raise the dead, he will renew the earth, and we'll see the fullness of his kingdom in a way that if we were to see it now and try to describe it, it would just sound ridiculous. And so taking up hope is to consent that the ridiculous-sounding future is true of you, of your neighbor, and of the world. And what's so beautiful about that Advent hope is that it's not actually naive and it's actually not ridiculous. It's not the superficial, warm and fuzzy sentimentality of the holiday season, no. It's also not the cynical, despairing lack of hope that says that the way things are is just simply all that we have. It's a real hope. It's a stump-and-shoot-together hope that deals honestly with the real pain and the loss of life without getting stuck in the darkness of those things, which is what we actually need. What happens when we take up a kind of hope where we lack either the stumpness or the shootness of the image? Just think about this for a second. What happens when you try to live with a, with a version of hope that's one but not both? I think it looks something like this. When, when you have no room for the shoot, right? When you're simply a realist who would say that hope is a pipe dream that we should just move beyond. You live with a kind of cynicism, right? You live with a kind of insider insight where you're the one who sees things more clearly, where you're the one whose narrative is going to be the most compelling and you need to enforce that on other people and on and on and on. It, it, just, it just keeps the cynicism going. But what happens when you have a version of hope that's all shoot and no stump? That's just purely optimism or positivity. Don't dwell on the negative things. What happens when you try to inhabit a hope like that? When there's no room for lament? It doesn't hold up in the real world, does it? And what happens is you get people who want to hold up a version of hope that really doesn't touch the ground, and you have people who want to live on the ground in a way that can't look up, and they shout at each other and inhabit a world of division and outrage where one side has no room for lamentation and the other has no room for hope. And if you've noticed, that's kind of where we live, right? That the call of Advent the call of this passage, the call of Jesus to us, I believe, is to call us into a kind of way of inhabiting the world that both laments the brokenness of all the ways in which our world is stump, yet also recognize that the faithfulness of God persists through it all, touches it all, and God who has come to us has not forgotten, has not turned away, 
is not just up there doing things to teach us stuff, but has actually joined us in our suffering to suffer with us, to transform us, and to lead us into this world that he's making. The vision that Isaiah gives us here, it's not just an artistic portrayal of the future that God has promised to bring. It's actually a picture for how we're to live now. It's a picture of how Mary lives in the story we read from Luke's gospel where the angel Gabriel comes to her and says these things are going to happen. And while Mary is perplexed and is saying, how could that be? She's also saying, here I am, Lord, your faithful servant consenting to the ridiculous future that is to be hers. That's a kind of Advent hope posture that I believe God invites us into at this time of year and, of course, all year. But we, we focus on this, this time of year, where we talk about becoming a people of Advent hope, a people who take up active engagement with God and one another to watch and wait actively, not passively, but to actively engage God as those who draw upon the abundance of that future to determine what we do, what we say, how we relate to other people right now. To take up a practice of hope is to essentially say, I won't live by a results-driven metric for what I will do toward other people. My love toward you, my forgiveness toward you, my mercy toward you is to be gratuitous. As I have been loved by Christ, so I am called to love my neighbor. That's what it looks like to take up Advent hope because that kind of love is not in vain. It is, in fact, fruitful because it's attached to the future God has promised. In other words, God calls you and God calls me to be the shoot in the middle of a very stumpy world, to be the shoot in and with Christ, who is the great shoot, the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. And our calling in him, as we take up a life in union and communion with him, as we take up a life of watching and waiting for his kingdom to come, is a life of of actively and diligently and passionately and energetically living as the shoot in the midst of a stumpy world trusting that God actually blesses that and brings life in and through those things. That's what it looks like to take up Advent hope. And it shapes not just what you think and what you say, but it shapes what you do. It shapes how you inhabit relationships around the family table, right? As you're gathered this Advent season, this Christmas season with your family, as you find yourself in difficult family relationships, as you find yourself struggling with the things this holiday season that are hard for you, or as you find yourself being swept up into the sentimentalism and into the consumerism, as you find yourself dreaming about overspending or, or, or satisfying some worldly sort of appetite that you have, whether it's for shiny things or food and drink or whatever, this kind of hope shapes the way we relate to our money, the way we relate to our conversations, the way we relate to our parents and our siblings and our children and our roommates and our neighbors and our friends our coworkers, it shapes the way we relate to our schedule and our time. It's saying, I will invest my life in light of the future God has promised, 
not in light of the future I'm trying to achieve myself. And that's the difference that an Advent hope makes in the real turf of our real lives. And the calling of Christ on you and on me this Advent is a calling, I believe, that where Jesus essentially says to us, will we let that story, his story, be the one we get swept up in? Will we engage this season of Advent in a way that forms us to be like him and not in one of these other more broken ways? This Christ who came at Christmas, this Christ who will come again in glory is the Christ who calls you to hope in him. That is your Advent invitation. May God give us grace that it would be so. Let us pray. Christ, our hope, we give you thanks for your loving kindness. We give you thanks for the ways that you come to us. We thank you that you came to earth so many years ago in Bethlehem to come to be born as one of us, to live, to die, to rise again. We thank you for the ways that you come to us as we draw near to you in prayer, that by your Holy Spirit you dwell in and among us, and you are near to us even now. And we thank you for the ways in which you will come again and establish on this earth the goodness, the wholeness, and the peace of your kingdom come. Would you give us eyes of faith and hope and love that we may see and perceive that future and actually receive it as our own? that we may invest our lives here and now in light of your future, in light of that promise, and in so doing, become shoots of life in and with you, the promised one upon whom the spirit of the Lord rests. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.